It's said that in life, when one door closes, another opens. This adage holds truth with concern to Africa's illicit economy in particular. Opportunities for illicit transactions are at any given time emerging, evolving or expanding. In this week's episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, we take a look at current trends in organized crime in East and Southern Africa. From the illicit smuggling of arms and ammunition from Yemen to Somalia, the worrying rise of high-profile kidnappings in Mozambique, and the possible emergence of an organized illicit trade in donkey skins from Kenya. You're listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindim Tongana. The latest phase of the civil conflict that erupted in Yemen in 2015 has led to a proxy war between Iran and the United States. Iran's supplies of weapons and ammunition to the Houthi rebels who control much of northern Yemen has been well documented in a series of maritime seizures of Daos dating back to 2015. But in some cases, Yemen is not the only destination for these weapons. Recent seizures of assault rifles in Somalia suggest that the conflict in Yemen is spilling over into East Africa. So essentially very early on, it seemed like there was some sort of opportunistic trading of small arms to Somalia going on as part of the larger geopolitical supplies to Yemen from Iran. Jay Bahadur, author of The Pirates of Somalia and guest editor of the Global Initiative's East and Southern Africa Risk Bulletin. So Somalia has been in civil war since 1992, actually a few years before that. So there is a very strong demand for weapons inside Somalia itself for government forces, for militias, clan militias, police, as well as some of the armed militant groups such as Al-Shabaab and the ISIS faction that also operates in northern Somalia. So there's a wide range of end users of new weaponry and certainly of ammunition, small arms and, and light weapons in Somalia. There is as well, researchers believe that arms are shipped onwards from Somalia or transferred onwards to countries like Kenya and South Sudan and even Central African Republic. But at the moment, there's very little evidence to, in terms of actual documentation of arms seizures to substantiate those claims. How are these weapons getting from Iran to Somalia? So far more frequently than weapons brought on dows to Somalia are very small-scale speedboat shipments that come from Yemen from the coast directly opposite Somalia. So towns like uh, Mukalla and Balhaf, Bir Ali, these are very common sources of small arms and, and light weapons and ammunition from Yemen. Those shipments tend to be much smaller, maybe a few dozen, perhaps 100 weapons taken in by speedboat, which can cross the Gulf of Aden in, you know, seven, eight hours. So those are very difficult to intercept, to detect, and they're also smaller and more frequent than shipments from Iran. In order to find out more about the actual process of smuggling arms into Somalia, the Global Initiative set up a fake transaction between a Yemeni arms dealer, let's call him Al-Hadi, based in the capital Sana, and a fake Somali buyer based in Kenya. In a series of WhatsApp messages and voice notes, the dealer revealed rather detailed information about the ins and outs of an arms deal, as well as the extent of the proliferation of arms in Yemen. Yemen needs weapons more than any other country in the world. We use them daily. These weapons and ammunition are our breakfast, lunch and dinner. We consume them more than foodstuff. Here's Jay Bahadur again. 
we located an individual in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, who we knew from this research was likely involved in the arms trade. And the purpose of this engagement was essentially to determine what the modalities of the transfer of weapons from Yemen to Somalia are. So that included how the money is sent, the contacts they use in Somalia, whether this particular dealer was connected to individuals we knew in Somalia, were arms importers, as well as the types of weapons the dealer had available and where those, and tr- try to determine as well where those weapons may be coming from. I can tell you the best places for delivery. If you make your order, I can give you the details, the routes to pass. If you wanted the delivery to take place in the sea, so after placing the order and agreeing on the prices, I can give you the details. This will be done in a confidential manner. So what kind of details were you able to confirm about the illicit trade of arms through these WhatsApp conversations? The arms dealer was actually very open in terms of sharing his prices and even serial numbers and photos of weapons in his storehouse in, in Sana. So what was very interesting is that just based on the photos and a few serial numbers, we were able to actually trace some of the rifles that this arms dealer had in his possession to material that had shown up in Somalia. So in, in this case, it was a um, Chinese-made AK rifle called a Type 56-1 which we found were very similar to the ones growing up in Somalia, as well as on some of the seizures of Dows in, in the Arabian Sea and the Gulf of Aden. What was also very interesting, this arms dealer also had very new Bulgarian-made assault rifles that he was selling that we thought, based on the appearance and serial numbers, were coming from UAE supplies to the internationally recognized government of Yemen. So it, it very much appeared that this arms dealer in Sana'a had access to new arms flooding into the country, both from the Iranian side, in terms of the, the Type 56-1 rifle, and this arms dealer seemed to be benefiting from essentially both sides in this proxy war. And then we were able, again, through the photos that he supplied, to trace some of that material to uh, weapons that had been documented in Somalia. And what about the costs involved and the volume of trade between Yemen and Somalia? These Type 56-1 rifles that, that I spoke of are essentially new, uh, haven't been used in battle, produced in 2017, 2018. And these rifles will sell for close to $2,000. So the price for one of these rifles was, was $1,900. If you're talking about some old Soviet legacy arms, AK pattern rifles from the, the 1970s, those might be available for $400, $500. So there is a vast spectrum of quality, of desirability as well across different AK pattern rifles. That nuance is sometimes lost in reporting on arms prices. Certainly a, a typical shipment of from Yemen, so several dozen AK rifles, perhaps some light machine guns, perhaps a few heavy machine guns and ammunition might cost several hundred thousand dollars or, or even half a million dollars. The GI team deliberately placed an order that would be too big for a small-scale trader like Al-Hadi to fill, 500 AK-47s. This, combined with payment delays, led Al-Hadi to back away from the deal. I was very enthusiastic to work with you, but your people have some kind of fear or something like that. And to add to that, the quantities are not available. So frankly, we cancel this. The quantities are not available. I would have liked that we work together, but I can't anymore. My greetings, and may God be with you. Even though Al-Hadi couldn't meet the quantities required, it is possible that a more established player could. Jay, what are the implications of this trade in weapons for regional security? 
Well, what's what's interesting, I think, and I think what a logical next step of research in this field would be to look at if these arms are getting into eastern Ethiopia. And I think that's something that's not really understood. But given the precarious state of, of civil unrest in Ethiopia, it would be very interesting, I think, to look at whether there are armed groups in the east of the country, in or- Oromia and the Ogaden, who may be arming themselves with weapons that ultimately come from Yemen. That's, again, more a bit of speculation. But given that Ethiopia has been teetering on the brink of civil war for a number of years, I think these illicit flows are gaining increased relevance to the peace and security of the region. That was Jay Bahadur, author of The Pirates of Somalia and guest editor of the Global Initiative's East and Southern Africa Risk Bulletin. News reports of kidnappings are unnervingly common in Mozambique. At its peak, 37 such cases were reported in 2013, but the trend shows no sign of abating. This year alone, at least eight people have been abducted and held for ransom. Despite past promises to address the problem, the Mozambican government is yet to enact any meaningful reforms. And it's possible that the appeal of kidnapping for ransom may attract other organized criminal actors in the country, including state officials. Estacio Valoy is an award-winning investigative reporter from Mozambique. Some of the cases come exactly from 2011, when the kidnapping process really started in Mozambique, targeting Indian businessmen mainly. This was mainly the first stage. Then came the second stage, where some Mozambican non-Indian people were also part of the kidnapping process. And then we came to the third stage, which is the current stage, where Indian businessmen became target again. How do the kidnappers choose their targets? And looking to the Indian citizen, Mozambican or foreigners living in Mozambique, they're target because according to the people involved in the kidnapping, these are the people who have huge amount of money for where they can profit. If you look, example, in 2011, about 30 million USD were paid by some of these families, which were targeted by all these people. Are the victims tortured by kidnappers while being held captive? Psychological violence is one of the main things these people have been suffering. And up today, when you look at the strategies which they've been using, one of the things is threats which these people have been facing until today, where some of them, despite being released or despite had paid the ransom, until today they're obliged to pay money so they can keep with their lives normal. Extortion is why some of the people end up living in Mozambique, because even if they paid a ransom, they are now free. They keep receiving phone calls from kidnappers so they can pay more money. The syndicates or the kidnap network involved in this business, they know exactly all the movements of these people. So it seems there is no real justice for these kidnapping victims. Are police officers working together with the kidnappers? All that indicates that police officials were involved. I'm saying this because if you look to the entire story of kidnapping process in Mozambique, does involve 
some non-local people, police officials, being led by some superior inside the police department. This is a process which could not change from one day to another. I mean, change in the sense that could involve new people, people outside the system, which is not possible. Because who exactly has the information, the intelligence, which end up informing those which are part of the network, those who execute, who goes to action. Why would state officials get so closely involved with criminal networks? So it's all about money. Business of kidnapping in Mozambique is a profitable business where people from the justice system to the criminal network are involved in it. So they both belong to the same criminal network. And when it comes to the stage of accountability, it becomes difficult because the justice system is rotten, failing, which makes difficult to bring all these people to accountability. People end up living on impunity. Impunity because those involved, unknown people, a friend of this, friend of that, a family of this, family of that. So it becomes difficult, but in fact, something must be done. Estacio Valoy is an award-winning investigative reporter from Mozambique. The humble donkey has caught the attention of illicit smugglers. The animal's skin is in high demand in China for traditional medicine known as ejiao. Used in a range of beauty products, the demand for ejiao has led to plummeting donkey populations in various countries, forcing many African states to ban the export of these products. In March this year, Kenya became the latest country to do so. However, the risk of an emerging illicit trade in donkey skins remains. Smugglers may look to circumvent the bans to meet China's unending demand for ejiao. Samantha Opere is a veterinary surgeon and project manager at Kenya Network for Dissemination of Agricultural Technologies. Samantha, can you give us an idea of just how big China's demand is for donkey skins? The University of Reading did a study on the whole trade of donkey hide, and they found that in 2013 that the demand for ijao was about 3,200 tons for that year. And they said that between 2013 to 2016, the demand for ijao had risen and it was now 5,200 tons of ijao that was needed. And this translates to about 4.8 million donkey skins in the year, which now if we look at donkeys is about 19 million donkeys. It's a lot of donkeys <laughs> and we don't have a lot of donkeys on the earth at the moment. Um, if we look at China itself, China had the highest donkey population in the world. It was about 11 million in the 90s. As at now, they're just under probably 3 million because of the trade. The decline of their donkey population has led to increasing demand of donkeys from other places. So this is where Africa and South America, countries like Brazil come in. So Kenya responded to this demand, issuing the first licenses for donkey slaughterhouses in 2016. What impact did this have on donkeys and donkey populations in the country? 
What we saw on the donkeys themselves was that their welfare was significantly compromised. If you look at transportation of donkeys, they used to be overloaded. Sick animals would be mixed with the healthy ones. Some of the donkeys would die during transportation to the slaughterhouses. Once they got to the slaughterhouses, they wouldn't be slaughtered immediately and they wouldn't be given feed or water. So we'd find that their welfare at the slaughterhouse is compromised. Then if you look at the population itself, Kenya had a population of 1.8 million donkeys in 2009, according to our census. Our 2019 census data hasn't been released at the moment, but with the increasing demand for donkeys, we found donkeys were being stolen at night and slaughtered in the bush in inhumane procedures. We found donkeys would be smuggled across borders. The other thing we saw is because the demand for donkeys was so high and there are not enough donkeys, the price of donkeys shot up. So for an adult donkey that used to go for between 5,000 to 10,000 Kenya shillings, suddenly was being sold for between 20,000 to 25, making it difficult for someone who had lost their donkeys to theft to purchase a new one. There's also a decline in the quality of breed of donkey. You'd find they're looking at the weight the live weight of the donkey at the slaughterhouse. So the heavier your donkey is, the higher the price you'll get per kilo. So we found that most of the good genes were going because the heavy, well-built donkeys are the ones that were being slaughtered or stolen and slaughtered. So what we had remaining are the weaker, not as pleasant to work with donkeys. And what effect did this have on communities that rely on donkeys? In Kenya... Donkeys are mostly found in areas that have poor road network and areas where it's generally arid. So you find most of the time donkeys are offering transport solutions in urban areas. We have donkeys that transport milk, vegetables, rice to the nearby market where the roads are a bit impassable for vehicles. And we have also donkeys that transport hardware from the shops to construction sites in case someone wants to move. Using a donkey with a donkey cart is cheaper than hiring a pickup. And in some places, donkeys also plow. Did an illicit market continue to thrive after the ban on the export for donkey skin products was introduced? At the moment, there's not a lot of evidence of it. But prior to the ban, there was a significant amount of underground movement because we had reports of donkeys being stolen in Tanzania. And then there would be sold to middlemen near the border and the middlemen at the border would then walk the donkeys across unmarked points of the different border points of Tanzania and Ethiopia and Uganda. And then once they were in Kenya, then they would be taken to a specific point and then loaded into lorries and then transported to the slaughterhouses. I think also at that time, we found a lot of new colored donkeys. So in Kenya, mostly our donkeys tend to be gray and brownish. We have a few black ones, but when the smuggling was really rampant, you'd see lots of ivory or white donkeys, which are common in Ethiopia, and then a lot of black donkeys, which are common in Tanzania. Then there would be like a lot of cases of diseases that are not common in Kenya that we'd start seeing in our donkeys here. But overall, since the ban, we've not really received any information on possibility of underground markets still thriving. But we are still quite vigilant on that. The ban was put in place this March. But Jay Bahadur says this may not be enough to stop the emergence of an illicit network. The ban in Kenya is is a very positive step. It was clear that this donkey slaughter was not sustainable and donkey populations were not replenishing to keep pace with the rate of slaughter. 
But what is needed, I think, is a regional agreement and even a regional ban among neighboring countries in this trade. Because I think what you'll see is that if Kenya, if the Kenyan ban is maintained, you might very well see an increase in donkey slaughter in Tanzania, where the trade is still legal, but right now is quite small in scale. So what you might see then is the theft of donkeys from within Kenya to supply the Tanzanian industry. You might see a commensurate increase in the scale of that industry as well. Slaughterhouses in Kenya are challenging the ban in court with the hope that a revised framework might create a middle ground for all parties concerned. However, not everyone is optimistic that such terms can be reached. Here's Samantha Opere again. I think we still need to make sure that before we even get to the middle ground that we put lots of policies and measures in place just to make sure everyone's interests are catered for. So we'd have donkey owners who know that there's a law and they should not have their donkeys stolen. And the slaughterhouse people know that they need to be careful with how they source their donkeys so that they're not being seen to be fueling either an underground market or trying to deprive people of their livelihoods. So we need people to just first agree to be in the same environment and work together. But as of now, I don't really feel like we have a good environment for a middle ground. That was Samantha Opere, a veterinary surgeon and project manager at Kenya Network for Dissemination of Agricultural Technologies. From arms and ammunition, high-profile kidnappings and animal skins, these illicit transactions and activities have a ripple effect on local communities, rural livelihoods, and regional security dynamics in East Africa and Southern Africa. Arms smuggled from Iran feed demand for weapons inside Somalia, but their blasts ring across East Africa. Kidnappings in Mozambique's business community point to systemic issues in the coastal nation's criminal justice system. And the ban on donkey skins in Kenya may pave the way for a donkey skin industry at active slaughterhouses in neighboring Tanzania. That's it for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. I'd like to thank our guests, Jay Bahado, Estacio Valoy, and Samantha Opere. To learn more about the topics covered in this episode, head over to the GI's website, www.globalinitiative.net, and check out the Civil Society Observatory of Illicit Economies in East and Southern Africa, Risk Bulletin Number 10. While you're there, feel free to check out some of the GI's other publications. There's a never-ending source of content to learn from. You can also find last week's podcast on irregular migration and social media in North Africa. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be focusing on the illicit economy in North Africa and the Sahel. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindy Mtongana. Thanks for listening. During the 21st century, thousands of criminal assassinations have occurred worldwide. They produce a butterfly effect of trauma locally, nationally, regionally and globally. Despite these efforts to silence, criminal assassinations can be a source of hope and community resilience. He had a fire in him. He couldn't stand corruption and he wouldn't stop after exposing it. 
She was such a force of nature that when I first met her, I came away a bit shaken, a bit intimidated. He was a very pleasant, modest and humble person who dreamt about a time when all criminals would pay for their deeds. She taught us the fear paralyzed actions of the people. We will never give up, even if we got killed, even if they murder us. They, they didn't, didn't die. die. They, they multiplied. Thousands of brave souls have paid with their lives because they refused to tolerate criminal governance. In 2019, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime commissioned approximately 50 profiles of persons assassinated across the world under the Faces of Assassination Project. These profiles highlight places where organized crime has permeated political, cultural and economic sectors of society. Check out our website and join the campaign.